December issue of the British Medical Journal has caused quite a stir this month. This esteemed publication at the forefront of medical research for decades contains an article that says, like a virgin mother in brackets. And it's reported that there have been many strange nativities in the United States of America. And it wasn't a seasonal joke. It's a serious article. Professors of biostatistics at North Carolina have basically in this article presented the findings of a long-term study of the reproductive health of 8,000 adolescents and young adults. And here's what they found. In the last 16 years, the United States has seen no less than 45 virgin births. That is, 45 women claim to have been pregnant without the intervention of any man. What do you make of that? I don't see anyone rushing out to buy any gold frankincense or myrrh. No, I'm no mind reader, but let me hazard a guess to what's going through your mind right now. I reckon maybe two words. I write. (laughs) You're experiencing what I've experienced. Dubiety. Suspicion based on these claims. Why? Well, whether we've passed our standard grade biology exam or not, we we know that it's just not possible, right? Women don't get pregnant without knowing a man. Now, now mark this. I bet you, I bet you that that was the same kind of disbelief that met Mary when she started to show. When news started to spread that she was pregnant, though still a virgin, people would have responded just the way we responded. (laughs) You're right. So here's the question. How come Christians... People like us still believe the virgin birth. Because people like New York Times journalist Nicholas Kristof reckons that people like me are committing intellectual suicide, if you like, by believing it. Or or that we as a church collectively are saddling, saddling ourselves with an untenable doctrine that consigns us, if you like, to a past age and contemporary irrelevancy. We're not going to connect with our culture. No one's going to believe it. No one's going to want to join a church or believe in Jesus if we hold to teachings like this. And how come we are happy then to devote a whole service to remember this great doctrine at this Christmas time? Well, here's why. Because the doctrine of the virgin birth is actually vital to our experience of Christmas. It's vital to our experience of joy at Christmas time. And I fear we sometimes miss just how significant this doctrine is. Larry King didn't miss the significance of it. The CNN talk show host was once asked, and he had interviewed over 40,000 people in his time. If you had the choice to interview one person from across all of history, who would it be and what would you ask him? Well, he said, oh, that's, the answer is easy. I would like to interview Jesus Christ. And I would ask him, Are you indeed virgin born? The answer to that question, said King, would explain history for me. Now friends, whether you're here today, you're a Christian or not, today we're going to look at this historical account of the virgin birth and ask the question, did it really happen? 
We're going to look at what I believe are some convincing proofs for the fact that it did happen and then towards the end explore why it really matters to us. So as we explore did the question, did it really happen? I want to point us first of all to the, to the place. The place. Look with me at verse 26 of Luke 1. Here we read, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to... Now there's a Nazareth. We've already had a time reference. That's the sixth month. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth which is specifically a town in Galilee, and to a virgin. Okay? So, so, so what we're seeing here, even as we read that, with the historical markers of time and place, we're seeing that this is fact, not fiction. The author of this book, Luke, is not writing poetry. He's writing prose. He's not writing myth. He's writing history. Okay? History. He's deliberately pointing us to these historical places at certain times and dates. That's six months, by the way, into Elizabeth's pregnancy, Mary's cousin. In order to help us find our historical bearings. It's fact, not fiction. God is sending one of his messengers then, according to Luke, to this place called Nazareth in Galilee to then deliver a very special message. That's the first thing. When we look at the convincing proofs for why, for the virgin birth actually happening, we look to the historical location markers that Luke gives us. And he's someone, if you look back over the page to Luke chapter 1, he is someone who says in verse 3 that he has carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And it seemed good to him to write this orderly account for his friend Theophilus here so that he and we in reading this today might know the certainty of the things that are taught in here. So one of the convincing proofs is the fact that we are given historical markers in the place. The second thing, the people. Mary is introduced to us in verse 27. (coughs) Excuse me. But it's a very funny way of introducing Mary. Before he even mentions her name, he mentions her sexual status. I mean, how would you like to be introduced on your company website like that? Oh, one of our company partners is a virgin. His name is Craig. He got his, he's a virgin and he obtained his law degree from Edinburgh University. Isn't it bizarre? What a funny way to actually introduce someone. Why would anyone do that? Why would Luke want to do that? Well, it's simple. It's because the people of his time were looking and watching for the coming of a king. They were watching for one who would come and one of the key indicators that this one was the one was that he would be born of a virgin. I just read to you from Isaiah chapter 7 in verse 14 which said the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel and Emmanuel means God with us. So, so the reason why Luke is telling us this is that he's using words to point with almost like a great big neon arrow at Mary so that no one would miss the fact that she's the one, she's the virgin that Isaiah chapter 7 was talking about. Now notice what else he says. He also talks about her engagement. She's pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Now why is that important? Well, it's just another way of telling us that she's never been with a man. She's engaged. This is betrothal. She's not married. In other words, they don't consummate their marriage until they actually get married. And again, Luke is highlighting with a 
pink stubble boss marker. They've not known each other sexually. And that's Mary's own testimony. Look at verse 34 with me. How will this be in response to the, the angel's announcement, she says, uh, since I am a virgin. So she herself is claiming that she has never known a man. Then there's Joseph. Joseph responds to Mary's pregnancy. Uh, his, sorry, his response to Mary's pregnancy gives the claim to virginity some serious credibility as well. Why don't you turn over to the start of Matthew's gospel, chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. From verse 18, we see how Joseph was told about this. So his response to Mary's pregnancy gives the claim to virginity serious credibility. He wasn't there when the angel made the announcement to Mary that she was going to give birth to a son. It seems that we can assume that he found out from her. And can you imagine the scene? I mean, Joseph, I've got some news. Uh, please don't freak out. Uh, I'm pregnant. I didn't sleep with anyone. I've been overshadowed by the power of the Most High. How do you think he took it? Hi, <laughs> right. Uh, any right-thinking man would come up with only one explanation, that she had been with another man. And that's why he planned, as we see in Matthew chapter 1, that he planned to break off the engagement. He wanted to... In those days, they broke off their betrothal by an actual divorce. That's how serious the engagement was at that time. Verse 19 says, Because Joseph was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. But because any right-thinking man would only come up with one explanation for this girl's pregnancy, God knew he had to send an angel to provide the spoken word of explanation and, if you like, confirming what Mary had told him, God said to him through his dream, through the angel, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And what happened? Joseph stayed with her. And just so we know that, Matthew tells us in verse 25, Joseph sa it says that Joseph had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. Do you see the point? Do you see the constant refrain that's coming again and again and again? Mary is a virgin. She's not known a man. And the baby is not Joseph's. These historians are telling us that Joseph is not the father. Interestingly, if you look back at verse 2 of Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy there. It's Jesus' family tree, if you like. And all the way through this, you have Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and such and such the father of such and such, and such and such the father of such and such. 39 times it repeats that phrase until you get down to verse 16, where it says with an interruption of the flow, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, not father of Jesus, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, which is just the old, promised Old Testament anointed one. Interestingly, in that verse, do you see the words by whom? In the Greek, they are feminine singular. That's pretty careful, isn't it? Feminine singular. Make no mistake, this baby boy was born. It was not Mary and Joseph. It, certainly, it wasn't, certainly wasn't Joseph. It was Mary and Mary alone who was overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit. From her alone, singular, feminine singular, the Son of God would be born. This is truly a virgin conception. That's the testimony of the people. Third thing, testimony of the culture. Now, 
this is important. Something else that provides corroborating evidence of the truth of these accounts. Unlike Edinburgh today, Israel back in the day would not have tolerated such adultery. That's what they would have assumed that Mary had committed. And it was, it was scandalous for a couple to have a child out of wedlock even. They would have been shunned socially and economically. And yet what we see in this text is that Mary responds to the angel with, with such willingness and submission. It's remarkable in itself, but even more so when we see actually how costly it would be for her and for them. Yet you see both Mary and Joseph are willing to expose themselves to the possibility of shame and even suffering through being misunderstood as a stupid husband who married an immoral woman in order to look after another man's illegitimate child. But their courage in the face of that culture that would reject them, that costliness, I think is further evidence of the truth of these claims. Why on earth would anyone put themselves through the misery and the marginalization if it wasn't true? It doesn't make sense. In fact, the one option for which there is no evidence is that Jesus is the lawful son of Joseph and Mary. We know that actually because of the rumors of Jesus' illegitimacy that spread throughout his own lifetime. These are documented for us in our New Testament texts. In John's gospel, Jesus says to the Pharisees that they and their unbelief could not have Abraham as their father. And what do they blurt out in response? <laughs> we are not illegitimate, as if to say, but you are. That's in John 8, 41. Or on another occasion, when people are asking questions about this Jesus, he's doing things that they didn't really expect a man would be able to do, miraculous things. And they ask the question, isn't this Mary's son? That's a question no one would have asked in a patriarchal society if his father was known. So why would there be rumors of this illegitimacy unless it was known that Mary was pregnant before she married Joseph? You know, the evidence, I believe, points to the virgin birth. Fourthly, the son himself. Verses 31 to 33 of Luke, chapter 1, are pretty incredible. This is the angel's announcement about this boy that will be born. This is who he is. <coughs> you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Wow, what a, what a description. And don't miss this. Mary is hearing an angel tell her that the baby she'll carry in her womb is both her son and the son of God. It's incredible. And here's why it's important. The fact that he is Mary's son is a true testimony of his full humanity. He is every inch a little human being. Despite the, the, the grandeur of these words, the greatness that is being exuded here by Luke. But this is a real little boy. He spent the duration of his gestation and development in his mummy's womb. 
no doubt he would dig that little heel up under her ribs on occasions and give her heartburn. That's what babies do. Just like every other baby. She would have experienced the pain of pushing him through the birth canal and out into this world just like any other baby. Don't believe the Bible that you've been watching on there. The TV show, that is. <laughs> the TV show called The Bible on Channel 5. Has anyone been watching that? The birth of Jesus was a couple of weeks ago and out came this little shiny baby. Perfectly clean, not even an umbilical cord. I wanted to know if Joseph cut it. That's not how Jesus was born into this world. He came out just like the rest of us. Needing cleaned with a cord to be cut. Listen, he's no Pinocchio. He's a real boy, fully, fully human. A boy who inherits, if you like, his humanity from his mother. But, remember, Jesus was not born to a human father. No, he was born of God. That's what verse 35 goes on to show us. The angel answered Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. By the same power of Almighty God that spoke a whole universe into creation is at work in this moment of conception to form a child in Mary's womb. It's God's power. That means, that that's the means by which the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, entered our world as a man. He entered our world as a man. Wrap your head around that. It is an incredible thought. Even more incredible when you think that he did not lose any of his deity in doing so. He didn't become any less God by becoming a man. Are your brains ready for this? This is G.I. Packer. Jesus is one divine human person in two natures. That is, with two sets of capabilities for experience expression, reaction, and action. The two natures are united in his personal being without mixture, confusion, separation, or division, yet each nature retains its own attributes. Fully man by virtue of his human birth. Fully God by virtue of the power of the Most High overshadowing Mary at conception. See how important it is that this son who was born was declared, as it says in verse 35, holy. I said a moment ago that Jesus inherits his humanity from his mother and in one sense, therefore, inherits the humanity of Adam, the first man. But because of this miraculous nature of this conception, the line of Adam, if you like, is interrupted. That means the one born to Mary by the creative work of God is the Holy One. That is, without sin. Without sin. And friends, this is exactly what we needed. This is the root and the core of joy at Christmas time. Because Romans 5 in the Bible reminds us that the fall of our first parents brought sin into the world. Through the disobedience of one man, all were made sinners. Every person born into our world inherits Adam's sin. We are born with a sinful nature. That means that we are born unholy. And because we are answerable to God, we are therefore objects of his wrath 
and destined for judgment. That's every man and woman's plight. What's worse, we are unable to save ourselves from this terrible predicament. Now, God could have rolled us up like a piece of paper and lobbed us into eternal oblivion. But to him, it would not be right for the restoration of creation and especially the restoration of human beings that were made in his image. Human beings on whom he set his affection and his love to be left undone. Yet what could be done about this sin problem by the laws of his nature and his design, God required that justice be met. That a sacrifice be made. And the sacrifice needed to be perfect, a sinless one. Yet no human being could ever make that mark. Our sin, our debt was too great, our nature too strong. But incredibly, even though man alone owed the debt for sin, God knew only he could pay it. For he alone is holy, holy, holy. Therefore, the one to pay the debt for sin must be both man and God's. And that's why it was necessary for the virgin birth. It was necessary for God to take humanity into the unity of his divine person so that he who in his own nature ought to pay and could not should be in a person who could. Fully God fully man that's the boy whose birth we celebrate at Christmas time that's why it matters that's why it matters because the life of Jesus Christ you see was so sublime so precious that it sufficed to pay for what was owing for the sins of the whole world and put these things together and you see exactly why the virgin birth matters. This miraculous conception was the means employed by God to ensure the one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas time was an absolutely unique person because of his absolutely unique birth. Virgin born. Who else could be simultaneously Mary's son and God's son? Fully human and fully divine. Judge of all the earth and the saviour of sinners. Jesus Christ. This was the means employed by God to provide us in our sinful condition with a rescuer who would save us from our sins, undo the brokenness that we experience in creation, and provide a way for us to live in eternity with him in the new heaven and new earth with him in that kingdom that will never, ever, ever end. This is why Mary is highly favored, verse 27. That's why she responded with such faith. That's why she's willing to endure the mockery of the culture around us. That's why I believe it. That's why the church holds tightly to it. Do you believe it? Do you hold tightly to it? I think Larry King is right, isn't he? This does explain history. This does explain Jesus' claims to deity. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. He declared himself to be God. After his resurrection from the dead, Thomas, who hadn't seen him the first time around, saw him the second time around. He says, you want proof? I'm paraphrasing. Put your fingers here. Put your hand on my side and see it. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, Jesus allowed himself to be called my Lord and my God. 
Is he, is he, a, is he a, a megalomaniac or something? Has he just got this massive ego? Well, no. He didn't rebuke Thomas for that declaration of faith. No, he considered people who declared that to be blessed of God. The uniqueness of his person that's evidenced by his virgin birth explains for us Jesus' abilities. He could walk on water. He could heal the sick. It makes sense of Jesus' death, for that's why he came. It makes sense of why he would, in his unique person, fully God, fully man, be so targeted on a cross in Jerusalem where he would go and die and pay for the sin of the world. It makes sense of his resurrection and the fact that he was then vindicated by God to prove that God had accepted the sacrifice on the cross three days before. To prove that he was indeed God's son. That's what Romans 1 tells us. It explains Jesus' ascension, that he was raised to reign in power. It explains the spread of the news about him across the whole world, how a a, a bunch of guys who really did not do themselves any favors, as we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, turned into these roaring lions in the book of Acts. It certainly makes sense of the spread of Christianity across the globe. It seems to me to make sense. That if God is God who chose to come into this world in order to be the savior of sinners, the one who would live such a a wonderful, sinless life, miraculous in every way, well, it would make perfect sense to me if someone asked me, well, what kind of way do you think this God would come into the world? Well, a virgin birth seems pretty, a pretty good way to do it. So I think Larry King is right. Well, I think that means that Nicholas Kristof is wrong. I think believing the virgin birth does not consign us to intellectual suicide. Far from it. A simple consideration of these vital and reliable historical documents, like in Luke's Gospel or Matthew's Gospel, demonstrates actually that there is sufficient evidence to support the Christian teaching on the virgin birth in terms of the location, the people, the culture, the experience, the historical uh, accounts of the son himself, who he was, how he lived, what he said, what he did. It's based on fact, not fiction. And it's funny that Christoph seemed to think that when considering the birth of Jesus, the burden of proof is on believers to actually prove that it happened. But I think the burden of proof is on him. And for others who find it, who are suspicious of it to find a suitable explanation for this birth this life, this death this resurrection of Jesus Christ I dare say there is more credible evidence for a virgin birth than for a big bang yet he will not bring himself to acknowledge it is it not more humble then as humans as men and women and children to say as Mary has said rather than pushing back against God and what he has said and say oh I'm dubious about that is it not better to let God be God and say with Mary let it be as you say let it be as you say humility is key and finally our response to the Bible's teaching on the virgin birth should not be I write 
it should be yes please yes please a response should not be one of unbelief but belief and with joy and wonder and thanksgiving know what Christmas is all about so that when we open that Christmas card and we read the verse which says and the virgin will be with child and you shall call him Emmanuel God with us you won't be saying oh isn't that nice I got a card from Joe and you'll be like praise God praise God praise God that is phenomenal what wonder that God would do that for us or when we sing tonight at carols by candlelight Christ by highest heaven adored Christ the everlasting Lord late in time behold him come offspring of a virgin's womb don't let it be your lips and your lips alone that move let your heart be moved by that God was stepping into our world to pluck us out of it to rescue us and friend if you're here today and you're not a Christian the angel said that Mary was highly favoured she hadn't, don't misunderstand that. She hadn't done anything to deserve this duty. She received the favor of God because God himself is generous with his grace. And you too at this Christmas time can know the generosity of that grace today through faith, through believing. And I think you would do well if I can encourage you to consider Mary's example and perhaps follow it. She counted the cost of trusting God and chose to let him be God despite the risk of maybe her facing some kind of mistreatment or slander. Believing the things that we're talking about today can sometimes carry a stigma of being weird or irrational or anything else. Yet we should believe God. Mary trusted God and believed that, that God had that capacity to create physical life in her. And we can trust God too and believe that he has the capacity to create spiritual life in us. New hearts. New life. That is, by its very nature, eternal. If only we would leave behind our unbelief and turn from our sin and trust in the Son, Jesus Christ, then maybe today, with Mary, you might be able to say, Behold, I am the Lord's servant. Let's pray together.